as Pastor Kerry said, my name is James. Um, I've been in Korea uh, now for almost 10 years. Um, this is year 10 with my wife, Kimberly. She's an international school teacher up in Seoul. We have a, one son who's five and a half years old. He just started kindergarten. His name is Elijah and uh, moved to Korea uh, to plant churches. Uh, that was the heart and uh, have been doing that for the last 10 years. And so um, this, is, this is a part of that. Um, this gathering here in Pyeongtaek, our gathering Freedom Village Church up in Seoul in the Itaewon area. And there's a couple Korean-speaking locations um, in and around Korea as well. And so it's just an honor and a privilege uh, to be uh, here with you today. Um, it's certainly been a while since I've had the opportunity uh, to be here worshiping with you, uh, but I am grateful for the opportunity. Um, again, I do want to bring greetings uh, from our gathering up north, <laughs> uh, uh, Freedom Village Church, and uh, greetings from its leaders as well. Uh, you might not know this, so I'll let you know, but I want you to know that um, we think about you often. Um, every week, you are a discussion, uh, every Tuesday. Uh, we think of you, we're praying for you, and um, we're just so grateful for the work that's being done down here. And then finally, um, I just want to say, um, even though he wouldn't want me to, I want to say a special thanks to Pastor Kerry. Uh, Kerry and I have been working together now for almost four years, and I'm just so appreciative of him. Uh, for his devotion, for his love for the local church, um, and especially you here. And uh, he's been a great blessing to me and the ministry, and I'm certain uh, that that's the case for all of you here as well. Well, today, uh, I'd like to share with you a topic that's very near and dear, uh, close to my heart, and that's the topic of community or fellowship. Uh, you know, as a person whose job it is uh, to study the Bible— uh, I've read, I've studied uh, uh, this idea of fellowship and how important it is, that it's a key piece uh, of the Christian life. But nothing really highlighted that for me more than uh, going through that recent uh, pandemic that we're not supposed to talk about anymore. Uh, particularly here in Korea, if you weren't here, uh, a few of us were, but maybe you were in the States, but particularly here in Korea, uh, we were isolated uh, quite a bit. Uh, we couldn't actually gather together like this. Uh, we couldn't fellowship in each other's homes uh, for like two years. It was, it was pretty intense, really hard. And we've seen the effects on this, on people. Uh, people feeling more depressed. Statistics say that anxiety um, was at an all-time high, and that continues today. People questioning the meaning of life, questioning their purpose. And for me specifically, um, it just further... Uh, highlighted for me my need for fellowship, my need for community. It revealed to me our need for, for gathering together, our, our need for meaningful fellowship. And just so we're on the same page before we go any further, um, understand that when I say that word fellowship, when I use that word fellowship here and moving forward, I don't mean uh, like some version of a watered-down hangout, okay? Uh, I'm not referring to trivial socializing. I'm referring to fellowship that is an indispensable ingredient to the Christian faith. Uh, I'm talking about one of God's chief means of grace in our lives, uh, a fellowship that is core and essential to the Christian life. And so that's what I want to talk with you about today, this idea of biblical 
fellowship. And to do that, I'm going to anchor our time together in Hebrews chapter 10. So if you have a Bible, why don't you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. What I hope to show you from this text, in this passage, is a couple different things. Uh, first of all, I want to show us simply what fellowship is. Um, next, we're going to look at what's at the heart of this biblical fellowship. And then finally, I want to share with you uh, how we can make this fellowship a habit of our lives. So let's begin reading this text together. Again, this is Hebrews chapter 10. This is the way that verse 19 starts. It says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, and we're going to pause right there. Um, what the author is ultimately talking about here, this author of Hebrews, is being in the presence of God. It's, it's having fellowship with the Lord. And he gives us some great encouragement here that we can actually have confidence in regards to being in relationship with God, with being in fellowship with him. Now, um, I said that we're going to anchor our time together in Hebrews chapter 10, and we're certainly going to do that. But to really understand this idea of biblical fellowship and the significance of this passage here in Hebrews 10, we really need to go all the way back to the beginning of the scriptures. You see, we know that when, the, when God created us, he created us with this idea of fellowship in, in mind that we were actually created for relationship. Relationship, yes, first and foremost with God, but also relationship with one another. And this relationship or, or fellowship that we have in mind here in the scriptures is uh, this term in Greek, it's called koinonia. It means uh, a shared life. It means togetherness. It means uh, relational unity. And God made us, we are told, to, to experience this with one another. Think with me. All the way back in Genesis chapter 1, we read there that God makes man and woman. He, he blesses them. He provides for them. And he does this for their flourishing, for their well-being in every single way. He gives them food to eat, beauty to experience, glory to see, this safe and secure place. But here is what we also see there, that God doesn't just create them, set them in the garden, and then just leave them there on their own. That from the very beginning, we actually see God speaking with them. It's amazing. He's interacting with them. He's actually walking with them. He's getting to know them as they're getting to know him. There's this togetherness there in the garden. And so we can rightfully say that humanity was experiencing oneness with its creator, with the creator God. Again, it's this amazing and, and beautiful thing that's a little bit hard to wrap our minds around. And amidst that relationship there, we know that what God tells them while they're experiencing this fellowship, this koinonia there, is that he says to them, as long as you trust me, as long as you have faith in me, that I have given you everything that you need, as long as you trust that I am good, you will continue to be in this fellowship with me. You're going to continue to experience this goodness of unity 
with me. But if you disobey me, um, if you walk in accordance with your own ways and not my ways, that relationship is going to be broken. Our fellowship is going to be tarnished. Well, I'm certain that the vast majority of us here know what happens next. Uh, we learn that in the garden, Adam and Eve, uh, they go their own way, right? They disobey God. They go beyond the boundaries that God had set for them, established for them. And just as God said would happen, their intimate fellowship with God is damaged. It's tarnished. It's broken. Uh, man is cut off from their creator and then symbolized in, uh, that is symbolized then in being driven out of the Garden of Eden. But listen, because God is gracious, because he is good, because he is kind, even when he drives man out of the garden, what did he do? Well, we read that he covered their nakedness, right? He covers them with animal skin. And so he leaves us with this implication that because of their sin, because of their brokenness, that something needed to cover their shame that something needed to die to cover them. From the beginning, we see that the way to restored fellowship is through bloodshed. It's through the death of another. Well, we continue. The story continues from the garden. Time goes by, and God, we know, calls a man named Abram. And he is told that the nations are going to be blessed through him. God comes to Abraham. Abram. He says, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing that through Abraham, a nation will be created, and that through that nation will come a solution for their brokenness, for restoration, that one day, God says to Abraham, every tribe, every nation, every tongue will have a way back to God. But until that day comes, God, in his grace, says that he will have fellowship with this nation that he created. Once again, that he will dwell with them, that he will be their God. But the only way for that to happen is if their sins are atoned for, if their sins are paid for. And so what happens? The story of Israel continues. We see that God sets up this temporary system of sacrifice where the people could go to this established temple, to these flawed group of people that we know as priests, who also needed atonement for their sins, they could go to these people, and then God would work through these means. He says, for now, if you bring your sacrifices to me via the priests, I will count your sacrifices as an indication that you are trusting me to cover your sin. And because of that trust, because of those sacrifices that you bring to me, I'll continue to fellowship with you. God does this in his grace. But all along, we know through generation after generation, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of animal sacrifices, all this blood, it was always saying, this isn't the permanent solution. This isn't the ultimate answer. That something different is going to happen. That something else needs to happen if fellowship is going to be restored forever. And so, most of us again know the story, Christ comes. Christ came. Christ came to secure our peace with God. Christ came to open a way to make a path to fellowship and restoration fully and completely once again. That where sin shut the door to fellowship with God, 
Jesus comes to open that door. And that whole narrative, this whole story of the Israelites, listen, all of that is the context, you have to know it, it's the context of our passage in Hebrews today. It says, therefore, brothers, since now, because of Christ, we have confidence to enter the holy places. Again, that's entering into his presence. That's entering into fellowship with him once again. How? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So the author of Hebrews says, God the Son, eternal, divine, he added to himself what he was not, a human nature, flesh. And he did so so that he could step into our world and be a sacrifice, a once-for-all, single sacrifice to cover, to pay for our sins. See, Jesus died innocent in our place, he settled our account as the great high priest over the house of God. You see that designation, that title there given to him in verse 21. In other words, he was not like all those other priests who needed to offer sacrifices because they were sinners themselves. Jesus needs no sacrifice. He was spotless. He was blameless. He kept the law perfectly, which means that today we know that we have a priest that is able to open up a new and living way. A priest who could bring us back into the presence of God, into fellowship with God forever. And, and look at how we can enjoy this fellowship that Jesus has reestablished. Look at how we can enjoy this fellowship. What do we do with this new and living way and the great priest who leads us in? This is verse 22 to 23. It says this, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. It says there, it says there, we draw near to him in full assurance of faith and we hold fast the confession of our hope. So we see now the answer. This is how we enjoy and come into fellowship with God. And it's how we remain with him. We keep drawing near to him. We hold fast to our faith, to our assurance. We, and we do that with hope. So let's think about how that relates uh, uh, to, to us enjoying fellowship. The author says here, don't miss this, that we draw near to him, that we actually approach his presence with confidence, right? Imagine that. We can approach the God of heaven, the God of all things, with confidence. It's amazing when you understand the depths of our sin, by the way, and our holiness uh, and the holiness of God, that we can approach him with confidence. We go to God in confidence. How? Well, it's certainly not because of us, right? That's for sure. It's 100% because of Jesus Christ. That's what our text is saying, that we can approach God with assurance because our hearts have been sprinkled clean, covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. We can and should have, actually, full assurance of our faith today because God has counted Jesus' death in our place. Listen, 
there is nothing that you have done, nothing that you have done that Jesus' death on the cross is not sufficient to pay for. Nothing you have done that would make you unwelcome. Uh, If you would just draw near, if you would humble yourself, if you would turn from your sin and acknowledge your absolute dependence on him, if you confess Jesus as Lord, confess him as Savior of your life, you can draw near to him today confidently. That's the message of Hebrews 10. We can have unity, togetherness, once again, like just like in the garden, togetherness with the living God, true and lasting fellowship with him because of Jesus. Jesus has restored us for fellowship with God. Amen? Listen, this is a fundamental truth to our faith. We can't miss it. Fellowship with God is fundamentally what God made us for and what Jesus Christ redeemed us for. Fellowship with God is fundamentally what God made us for and what Jesus Christ has redeemed us for. Not just, by the way, not just fellowship with God, but also fellowship with one another. Jesus has actually come and redeemed that as well. Think back with me to that Genesis 1 account, that creation account. Again, we are reminded man was made by God, created in his image and his likeness, and he calls us in Genesis 1.27 to multiply, to fill the earth, to steward this earth, to have dominion over it, to enjoy it, and to what? To do that alone? No. No way. What we see is that God desires us to do that together, that he actually wants us to experience life together. It actually says when Adam was alone, that it's not good for man to be alone. Everything that God created was good. We're told that over and over again. He created you know, the heavens and the earth and the birds of the air and the fish and, and people and everything you see, and it was good. There was only one thing in God's creation account that was not good. He looks at Adam and says, it's not good for you to be alone. And sure, it is true that there was marriage implication there. But even beyond marriage, there is a a greater implication there. And that is the, the implication of fellowship. That God has actually designed us all, not just those who are or married or potentially will be married, but even to all of us, that God has actually designed us to be together, to have relationship with one another. And let's remember this as well. I think this is sometimes an overlooked detail um, in the Eden account. That when Adam and Eve sin, we know that they have a response, right? That they, they run and they hide. They hide themselves from God. But we also cannot forget that they also chose to hide themselves from one another, right? They covered themselves, meaning there is now broken relationship, broken fellowship, not just with God, but there was also broken fellowship and relationship with each other. And that's why when they leave the garden, what happened? We know that things become a mess, right? There is deep conflict between humanity. There's bloodshed. There's violence. There's deceit, manipulation, war, and all sorts of other self-centeredness. It actually got so bad that in Genesis chapter 6, the scriptures tell us that God looks down at 
man that he created. And he says, and all I saw was evil continually. God says that of us. Meaning that we made again, once again, an absolute mess of the fellowship that he designed for us to enjoy. Our self-centered sinfulness, our self-centered sinfulness broke our togetherness. But again, through Christ and his sacrifice, we know now the good news that that also has been restored. That for those who draw near to him, we are adopted in Christ. We are forgiven. And the same spirit that was in Christ Jesus now comes to live inside each and every one of us. And what is the spirit doing as our helper? Well, the Holy Spirit is doing a number of things in our lives for those of us who are in Christ, but mainly the Holy Spirit's job is to help you and I become more like Jesus. And as the spirit is helping us to grow more and more to be like Jesus or be like God, listen, we are simultaneously growing more towards one another. I uh, it was one of the first things that I was told in premarital counseling, actually. Uh, my premarital counselor at that time drew a triangle, told my soon-to-be wife, still my wife now, uh, wife and I, um, that if you guys are the two bottom pieces of the triangle, here's a healthy marriage. Never try to go towards each other. Uh, both of you strive towards God, and that will naturally draw you towards one another. Um, that's marriages, you know, uh, have issues and problems when we focus on not just ourselves, but actually on each other. We focus on God, and that will draw us near to one another. Uh, it's a really, really beautiful, beautiful thing. So God, first and foremost, wants fellowship with us. But right behind that, closely following that, his desire is that we would have fellowship with one another. So now with that in mind, we, we take that back to our main text now. Okay, Verse 24 through 25 gets really practical for us. And I think there are a few things in these verses that help us to know how we can pursue and express this habit of fellowship or God's means of grace and fellowship. The text there says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Three quick points that I want us to see from this. Three very quick points. The first thing that we see here is that if we want to practice biblical fellowship, just in a really practical way, number one, we need to consider one another. Okay? If you want to practice, let's look at the next slide, if you can turn it there. Yep, thanks. We have to consider one another. If we want to practice biblical fellowship, we need to consider one another. You know, it's interesting. I was thinking about this again this week. I think being considerate is a very undervalued virtue in the Christian life, in the Christian faith. And biblically, uh, to be considerate, it means to be thoughtful. It means to be mindful. It means to be watchful. A really good word for being considerate is uh, observant. Uh, and you need to be those things if you truly want to consider people's circumstances, their weaknesses, and their needs. And notice he doesn't just say here, hey, church, hey, guys, here's what I want you to do. Let's love and do good deeds. No, what does he say? He says, let's stir that from others. And even before that, let's consider, he says, how we might stir up one another to love God, 
to love others and to do good works. So we have to consider one another, which means we have to actually know one another. It means that we need to be close, that we have to know each other relationally. This is not a good way to think of this. Is, this is not like uh, being friends on Facebook and Instagram, okay? That's not what it means to be a friend. It's not being a friend to the extent where you can be in and out of a person's life when you choose and at your own convenience, right? Not at all. This is being genuinely intentional with others, being together with clear purpose, even when it's hard, even when it doesn't fit perfectly into your schedule, even when you're tired and maybe don't feel like it. We have to consider each other for the purpose of helping each other move closer to Jesus. And then along with that, and I hope this is an obvious point, but to practice this habit of fellowship, we must meet together, okay? That's an obvious thing. Again, verse 25 says, not neglecting to meet together, there it is. Then he says, as is the habit of some. So simply put, we should be gathering. Uh, We should be assembling is a good New Testament word. We should be assembling together. The author warns us here, don't develop the habit of not meeting, which is so easy to develop, isn't it? I mean, did you know uh, recently there's a, a... church uh, Christianity and um, uh, statistics, Christian statistics. It's a big group called Barna. Pew Research is another group that does a lot of statistics on church and how people, you know, how many people are being baptized and coming in and out of the faith and um, just church attendance and denominational things. Anyway, um, they did this really, really interesting study uh, not so, not so long ago. And it says that, that, it says there that the average Christian in a Western context, even though we're in the East, this is a Western context, the average Christian in a Western context gathers with other believers on average of one to two times per month. That's the current Christian standard that's been set. And so, what would, what would the author of Hebrews say to us? Fight that. Like, don't fall into the same trap as is the habit of so many in our culture. Right? Don't drift, he's saying prioritize and resolve to meet together. Make a decision beforehand, right? I'm now forced to, right? Uh, I have really no choice but to continue to gather and meet together because it's, I guess, part of my job, right? I couldn't just be like, ah, feeling a little bit tired. I'll watch online today. Well, that doesn't work. I got to be there to make sure that there's something being taught online, right? But I know before I was a pastor, that's a, that was a tough thing for my wife and I, you know, newly married. We'd go travel or something like that. We'd wake up and be like, ah, you know, you hear the... Ah, you have to sniffle, say, ah, maybe it's better for us to just stay at home, right? It's very easy to do that. And so you have to resolve to not, make, to, to, to not do that. Even, you know, Saturday night, it's a decision. I'm going to lay out the clothes. I'm going to put out stuff for the kids. As hard as it is to throw them in the van and to get over here. And you're arguing in the van as you get over there, right? Even as a pastor, I fall into that, right? I have a five-and-a-half-year-old. Get in the car. Let's go. We're going to be late, right? And then all of a sudden, you know, you're getting there and shh, quiet, quiet, right? Now we're at the church. Behave, right? Act like we're good, right? This is what you do, right? But you have to resolve. I'm half kidding there, okay? That does not happen on a regular basis. Um, but, but this is so easy to do. So fight that, right? Prioritize and resolve to meet together. And I think it's very clear in this text. It's actually assumed in the text that this meeting together, this habit of meeting together, goes well beyond the Sunday worship service. Okay, that's an assumption. 
in the text that we should know. The Sunday gathering, like what we are doing right now, is not the end-all, be-all. The Christian life and gathering together goes beyond that. It's more than that. You remember, if you don't, I'll remind you now, in Acts chapter 2, right at the beginning of the launch of the church, it's written that followers of Jesus, we're told this in Acts chapter 2, down, look at verse 42 through 47. It's told there that the church, these followers of Jesus, were devoted or devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. That means they were hearing the word, doing the word. But also then it says next, to what? They were devoted to what? To fellowship. To the breaking of bread and to prayers. In other words, what, what the author of Acts, Luke, tells us is that the church had this deep commitment to knowing God through his word, but they also had a deep commitment to each other, that they were meeting together regularly, praying, worshiping, sharing meals. It says that daily they were going into each other's homes even, serving each other, sharing resources, living on mission together. This defined the early church. It's why the world was flipped upside down in Rome, because of this. You see, as they came, the people came to an understanding of all that God had done. That Jesus had reconciled them back into fellowship with himself. The natural result of that was this desired fellowship with others. We can't miss that. This is so foundational, so foundational, so fundamental to our faith. A clear understanding of the gospel. If you truly, truly understand the gospel, that will lead you, should lead you, to be not only devoted to God, but also to be devoted to other people. Which means that we were made for much more than just private devotions. Not that those are not biblical. Of course they are. You should have a personal relationship with God. Prioritize that in your life. But we were not ultimately created to have a privatized faith, but rather a faith that is shared. A faith that is shared. We were made to worship Jesus together, both now and forever. That's why in Revelation, by the way, what is the vision that the Apostle John sees at the end? Follow this. Look at this text. It says this. This is the next slide. It says, after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, we were always meant to glorify God together. It's the message from the beginning. It's the message at the end, to worship God together, to pursue God together. And in the end, we will be with God together. So even now, do not neglect gathering together. Go to the opposite extreme. Be devoted to gathering together. I know it's difficult. Again, things happen, right? Kids get sick, scheduling conflicts. But when you are able... Be here, commit to it, prioritize it, and beyond that, get in deeper community. Find even deeper fellowship. Make it a non-negotiable in your life to being with people who are also committed to discipleship, to the things of Jesus, to the things of the kingdom. Why? 
because you understand that we were actually created, designed for fellowship. Fellowship with God, yes, but also fellowship with each other. God has made it so, actually, that we flourish best, that we find the, the, high, the heights of, of, of peace and love and mercy and grace and joy. We flourish best in this earth in community. So devote yourselves to gathering together. And then finally, if we want to practice biblical fellowship, we must persevere in it. We must persevere in it. That's number three. Can we put that on the screen? Number three, we must persevere in it. The end of verse 25 in our Hebrews 10 passage says this, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So again, fellowship is not a once in a while habit. That's not what we see here. It's not a once a month thing. And as Jesus's return gets closer to us, and every single day we live, we're closer to his return. As Jesus' return gets closer to us, there will increasingly be more reason to grow tired, to grow discouraged, to grow weary. This text actually alludes to the reality that it's going to be harder. It's going to get harder and harder to be devoted to fellowship as trials come. As the world turns further and further away from God, it's going to be more difficult to be devoted to each other. And so what do we do, he says? We need to encourage one another to remind one another that we need fellowship, that we need to gather together, that doing so is for our good and for our joy. It's literally, again, what we were created for and what Jesus saved us for. So as the church, my message to you today is simple. Let's be devoted to fellowship. Let's go all in together for the gospel. Let's commit to helping one another draw near to God and to encouraging one another to hold fast the confession of our faith. Let's help each other grow. Let's serve one another with our gifts. Let's come together to learn God's word, to pray bold prayers, to remind each other of the gospel. Let's gather together to encourage one another, to challenge one another, to care for one another, and to join God on his mission to making disciples with one another. Listen, uh, I'm not here to today to tell you that this is easy. <laughs> Um, or it's going to be easy. It takes time. It takes intentionality. It takes energy. It takes a lot of mercy, patience, and grace to be committed to meaningful and lasting fellowship, right? It's hard. It's really hard to let others into our lives and to truly get to know other people. And my fear is that because of that, many of us have turned from it. And if we're honest, many of us have a list of excuses not to do this. But, again, we were created for fellowship. It's God's design. It's his desire. And now, through a relationship with Jesus Christ, we can and we get to enjoy it. Fellowship with God, but also fellowship with others. So let me ask you a closing question this morning. Where are you with all of this? As you look at your life, are you devoted to gathering together to the fellowship of the saints? Are you committed to this because you believe this is how God designed you and what he has made you for, that he has called you to this? Or, or, have you neglected this? Have you neglected fellowship as is the habit of son? My prayer for you here in Pyeongtaek is that you would be a church that considers one another, encourages one another, and deeply desires to meet together for the purpose of being more 
like Jesus Christ and walking in his ways. And beyond that, I simply pray that you would truly understand the gospel. Because again, a clear understanding of the gospel will lead you, should lead you, to be devoted to God, but also to be devoted to others. Amen? Let me pray for you. Uh, Jesus, once again, we are humbled by your grace. We are humbled by your mercy, by your great love, that while we were yet sinners, Jesus, you came and you died in our place. You died a death that we deserve to die for our sins. When fellowship with you was tarnished, broken, when we didn't deserve meaning, lasting relationship, fellowship with you. Father God, you still look down on us with love and grace and sent your son Jesus to restore what was lost, to take back what was broken. And so God, today, I pray that all of us would know the amazing truths of the gospel, that through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, through a life that says yes to Jesus being Lord and Savior, there is restored fellowship with God, but also there is great opportunity for relationship with one another. And so I pray here and now, all of us would be convicted to the heart that we would choose, first and foremost, to pursue you, God, but also, we would also, out of that pursuit, pursue one another, to consider one another, to love one another, to serve one another, to commit ourselves, to devote ourselves to gathering together for our good, but for ultimately your glory, King Jesus. We love you. Thank you again for who you are and all that you do. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.